Welcome to Extra Musical, the podcast where we delve into the lives, thoughts, creative process, and hobbies of musicians and other creative artists. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit www.hiddencinemarecords.com slash podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and everything else going on at HCR, become a patron at www.patreon.com slash hiddencinemarecords. Today, we're joined by Dr. Javier Nero. He's a jazz trombonist, composer, arranger, and educator who's based in Baltimore, Maryland. He's also the lead trombone player for the Army Blues Band and teaches at the Peabody Conservatory of Music. You can hear more about him by going to our website and reading our show notes, but for now, let's get to the interview. Hey listeners, you just heard a little bit about Javier Nero uh, from our introduction, but now we're going to get to the interview. Hey Javier, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having uh, me. On. So, for our listeners at home who have not like listened to your music or don't know who you are, uh, why don't you give them a backstory of like who are you, like uh, what do you do, where are you based, and how did you get your start in what you do? Cool. So, uh, I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I started playing music uh, in middle school. My parents actually brought home a trombone from a friend that was having a garage sale and told me I had to join band in the sixth grade. So that's how I got my musical start. Currently, um, I'm based in Baltimore, Maryland. I just bought a house here uh, a couple months ago. Thank you. And, um, I'm teaching at a Peabody conservatory, um, along with, uh, Sean Jones, uh, Tim Green, Warren Wolf. We got a really nice faculty there. Good, good situation. And I also play lead trombone in the U S army blues. And, um, do other uh, outside uh, performances. I just played with the uh, Maria Schneider Orchestra last weekend. Yeah, and I try to try to keep busy doing other um, uh, other gigs uh, too. So that's yeah, kind of I mean, currently what I'm doing now. One thing I do now. notice about you is that you you're not like okay, I have my gig. I'm staying right here. You're quite often on the road, like when you can playing in New York. Uh, Maria Schneider was in Michigan, right? It was at a uh, what's that place? It was in uh, Chicago, actually, at the Ravinia Festival. Yeah, not, not Michigan. Yeah, 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 Chicago. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Ravinia. Yeah, Steens. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so um, the Army Blues thing, that's what brought you to the area in the first place, right? Exactly, yeah. Oh, man. So, like, how? What, what is that life like? Like, what is, like, the life of uh, the people in the army blues, like they play some of your charts, uh, and like you, you play a lot with them. So like, what's the schedule for that? Like, uh, it's pretty, um, it, it changes constantly. It's like every week is a little bit different. Um, so we have to make sure we stay on top of our, our schedules, but like, I'd say like the most common week would be, uh, rehearsals and then a gig. And that's like kind of what our, our schedule is actually, uh, this week. We had rehearsal Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, and then we're supposed to have a performance uh, tonight, and we'll see if it if it ends up happening. There's been kind of some uh, civil unrest down in the uh, capital region, so we might actually have to get canceled. So oh, we'll see if that no. happens. Yeah. Oh, is it like indictment things? I, I'm not exactly sure exactly, but I'm sure it's something involving like the crazy political stuff that's going on. So, I mean, oh, wow, I, I don't that doesn't affect my job much. It's not that I don't think about it, but I don't think about how <laughs> if something happens, I still have to like go teach high school, you know? Yeah. So, so I mean, like, yeah, we're, we're supposed to play right in front of the Capitol um, tonight. And so I think there might be some protests and rioting kind of going on. So oh, well, if people listening um, to the, um, like this, I think I'm going to mix this this weekend, like right, not right after I talk to you, but on Sunday and release this Monday because it's, <laughs> I have to get my August episodes together, but uh, hopefully <laughs> there's not this big outburst that we see. <laughs> we, this releases on Monday and someone goes, Oh, they called it three days ago. Um, yeah. I hope not either. So uh, the you're also a composer. That's one thing that like um, I think you kind of downplayed when you were talking to yourself because I remember back a few years ago when you were at the Frost School of Music and you had all the hair um, instead of like a military <laughs> haircut. Um, I would see you a lot with the studio jazz band while you're doing your DMA, and I was like, oh man, that guy's killer. And I'd hear some of your charts, and I was like, oh, I want to be that guy. Like you and Rafael Piccolotto de Lima, I think I like. Oh yeah, very closely when you were both at um, uh, Frost in different ways. Um, when you're writing, you you just released um, was that your debut big band project? Yeah, that was my first big band. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because I really enjoyed the album. I've only got to listen to it like two or three times so far, but like I'm excited that uh, it actually got done. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, obviously it takes like a lot of money and a lot of time to put together a big band album. And that's probably the biggest reason I hadn't done it sooner. And um, fortunately, you know, the teaching at Peabody and the, and the Army Blues gig afforded me the ability to actually finally get the funds together to actually do it. Um, and so a lot of these, a lot of the music, I'm actually looking at the CD case here. A lot of the music is stuff that I wrote over the course of like the last like 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fourth track on the album, Discord, is actually one of the first um, compositions I ever wrote. Um, however, the arrangement I kind of like revised um, yeah. like in the last couple of years. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, even though it's a new album that's just been released to the public, a lot of the music is, some of the stuff is is older. And I'd say maybe Kemet and Jam Number 3 are probably some of the newer tunes that I wrote. And those are probably still from like 2017 or 2018. Okay, so, I heard it for I heard Jam Number Three for the first time uh, when you guys came down to Salisbury for the uh, folk festival, and I was like, "Oh, this is a jam. This is uh, this is." A <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's, I mean, it's kind of a massive project because it's not like you just went with like a big, but you had all these guest artists too. So just like coordinating all of that seemed like a uh, like a massive effort, and it must be interesting to like think back when you wrote the pieces, especially if if they're so like not so old, but older to like where they end up with the guests. Like how does that, how does that change? Like people that you didn't know when you were writing the pieces, playing the pieces today, does that like change the way that you view them or the way that you heard them or the way that you even approach like mixing and mastering them? Yeah. I mean, I'm not like, you know, the way things are now, obviously we don't have like the ability to like write for specific musicians. Like, you know, like Duke Ellington used to be able to, so like I just kind of try to stick to things that are generally be like would generally be playable by by like a um, a high level jazz musician, and so I'm not really so much thinking about specific players when I'm writing for the band. I'm just thinking about like you know conventional um, uh, arranging techniques and things that are that are gonna, going to sound good and that I can grab people that are at a high level and they'll be able to play it. But as far as like um, uh, picking the soloists and picking the guest artists on certain tunes. I definitely was thinking about the specific players in that way, because I know certain people have a certain tinge, like maybe, maybe they play a little bit more bluesy or they have a little bit more of that Neo soul grace note kind of vibe when they play. And, um, or there's people that play a little bit more modern and that really like shredding and playing fast tempos. So I definitely think about those things. I want people to play on things that like they naturally, uh, feel like they're, like their musical values are aligned with what the tune is set that was setting them up for, as mm-hmm. opposed to having people that it feels like now they have to change how they play when they, you know, or it's like and, not, not disjunct, but like not necessarily the same vibe of the tune. Yeah, exactly. The solo where it's like, Oh, it's completely changed vibes once we got to the solo. Yeah. And, and so in that, in that respect, like, um, I really felt like, like having Sean Jones on the, on the album, Sean's music is like, I've been listening to him since I was in high school. And it was funny when I first started teaching at Peabody, um, after I finished my first semester, I went home and visited my, my family and we had uh, gone through all these old boxes and I found this old photo album where you used to take the disposable camera yeah. when, you would, when you would go on trips. So I met Sean back at the last IAJE conference in New York City back in like, uh, I think it was like 2006 or something like that. Um, and I found this old picture of, of the two of us after, after his, his performance there. So I was like 16 years old at the time. And he was probably like, you know, I'm not sure how much older than he is, than than he is. Maybe he was like in his like late twenties or something. Yeah. And then now here we are playing, uh, playing together and teaching together, like in Baltimore, Maryland, across the country, like all the, all this time. Yeah. It's like really full, full circle, especially because you're coming from the, you're coming from the West coast. Like how would you have any idea at 16 that, that that's what would be happening in your thirties that you're like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, but but anyway, sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there. The the reason oh, I, the I mentioned Sean, <laughs> the reason I mentioned that about Sean though is because his the way he plays, um, is you know it's the way he naturally plays is like a perfect fit for for my music. You know, it's like um, there's like the technical, the super high technical ability, 
but then it also has like that soul and gospel element um, and the blues uh, in there too, which is like exactly like the vibe of like most of my music. I try to, I try to get things, you know, that push the envelope as far as like technical ability and that maybe have some harmonic interests as well. But I try to keep everything always centered back on like the roots of, of the blues and groove as well, instead of just allowing things to become completely ethereal and um, you know what I mean? Because like some music, I do know, get, I do know. People definitely yeah. have a vibe where they not abandoned the blues or abandoned, but like there are people who definitely didn't grow up in a. Did you grow up in a church, like in a in a in a black vernacular church? <laughs> I would say I grew up in something that's the complete opposite of that. Actually, oh really? Um, so the, I was like, I was uh, I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness actually. Oh so, okay. So like the majority of the music that I grew up hearing in church was like very proper, like classical sounding music and like hymns and stuff like that. Um, we like Jehovah's Witnesses have their own songbook. So it's not like, like Catholic sounding hymns, but okay. like, it's still kind of of like that same kind of um, more classical sounding, more uh, reserved conservative sounding music. Is there any like crossover? The one thing I've learned, like I grew up in a Baptist church and the way we would sing hymns was completely different. It was like, so I would go to my wife's church, which is a Catholic church, and they would sing hymns all in unison. I'm assuming, did you guys at least sing in harmony, or was it like a very no? Like, it was it was a unison, man. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> so, the, so I, it's kind of like the the same aesthetic, but different songbook where it's like very reserved. Everyone sings the thing, the line, and like that's it. Yeah, kind of. Oh, yeah. interesting. So, so like, how, I mean. Was like was your like outside listening experience like a lot? Because you're, I mean, like you couldn't have just started listening to this stuff like yesterday. Your 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 musical palette seems very broad. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about that too because I, you know, as a teacher, I think about uh, things like this and how to influence people's like ears and and how they play. And ultimately, I think that you can listen to something like a more than you listen to something else. But the things that stick with you are, are the things that you really resonate with, the things that you actually mm. like. And you can't really, you know, and when you when you pick up your horn to play, the things that you that you love and the things that you resonate with, like, it's it's undeniable. So even though I, yeah, I mean, I had a childhood hearing that music all the time. But then I, did, I didn't grow up hearing, like, you know, stuff from the black church. But every time I heard it, it feels like it stuck with me, right? Um, yeah. And, um, but like, you know, obviously outside of the, you know, going to the kingdom hall as a Jehovah's witness, like the, uh, my, my parents listened to all the Motown, all the soul stuff. My dad's actually a pretty big, um, uh, jazz fan. So I grew up listening to a lot of, uh, uh, Freddie Hubbard. He specifically liked a lot more of the fusion stuff. Oh, cool. So I, I heard like a bundle of joy and, um, first light and, um, uh, red clay. Yeah. Some of, some of those, like some of those albums were like, were things that I kind of grew up hearing, like all the time, like we'd be on going on family road trips and be driving for a few hours and my dad would always be playing jazz. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I definitely had jazz in my, in my life, like as a, as a child here, hearing that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's kind of not full circle musically, but it's just, it's just interesting. The, the eclecticism or the eclectic childhoods that people have where they're like, Oh yeah, this was happening. This happened. Uh, and it like parents play a large influence, but also like friends and all that. So it's like it's it's interesting that that what resonated with you was not always what you were hearing, but there was also this 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 aspect that was there all the time, like that, that the Freddie Hubbard aspect. I, I'm kind of envious of that because my family wasn't jazz fans; they were like uh, neo soul soul fans. So like I didn't hear about like any of these jazz artists until I was like 20. So. Yeah, I mean it's great that your your dad got to pass that on to you. Does he like still? Uh, is he still alive? Yeah, he's still around. So yeah. he, uh, they come to your gigs when you're back in uh, were, were you Portland? Yeah, Portland, Oregon's where they live now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's a treasure. Yeah, but my yeah my my folks are actually going to be out here um, this month. They're coming on the fifteenth, and I have. Oh, they're coming for that gig. Yeah, so I'm playing at Keystone Corner with my with my uh, jazz orchestra. Um, I actually think I'm going to come to that, um, and I'm probably oh, cool, going to. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm probably gonna uh, link a link the ticket to the thing so people listening, uh, if you're in the Baltimore area and uh, you want to check out a killing jazz orchestra, they're gonna be playing at Keystone Corner on Friday, August 18th. I can do math right. Yeah, so two weeks from the day that we're recording, uh, they're gonna be playing uh, a couple sets. Uh, so featuring Sean Jones and Christy Dashiel, correct? Yep. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Man, you nailed man. it. <laughs> <laughs> your like creative background but like when you go to your creative process because like it's sometimes you see people who are like equal or like really really big players or really really big writers and then like seldomly it crosses over where they're both just equally killing at both like and i view you as one of those people where like you can do a a mid-sized group a small group a large group and it's just always sounds great what is like that creative process look like for you when it comes to practicing when it comes to writing uh and like balancing those two yeah i mean at some point i feel like in order to become a good musician you kind of have to be like unbalanced you know and mm-hmm. so I've, I've i've been fortunate enough to like like when i was in high school um you know I was just spending like all my time doing music stuff all the time. And at that point it was, it was mostly just playing. So like I was playing in a, in a jazz band in high school, which was like a zero hour class, six thirty in the morning. Then I had wind ensemble after that. And I remember my senior year, um, I had, I didn't have a second period. So I practiced for like, for like an hour. Nice. And then I would go to the rest of my classes. And then like the sixth period of the day, I didn't have anything either. So then I practice again for another hour. And then, um, and then I played in this conglomerate jazz band in Portland, Oregon. It was led by this uh, trumpet player named Thera Memory. He just passed away uh, a few years ago. But that was like a huge uh, uh, influence performance and compositional-wise, like later on, I think. Uh, but like that was all some of the best you know musicians in the Portland area that all played in this conglomerate group. So I was just doing music like all the time. And then obviously you go to Juilliard, uh, for my undergrad. And I was just doing music all the time too. And I really started writing a lot. My sophomore year, um, I, I was placed in a combo that was a septet. So the same, the same instrumentation that I wrote my first album for, yeah. uh, piano, piano, bass, drums, trombone, trumpet, tenor, and alto sax. So four horn front line with three, uh, three part rhythm section. And, uh, a friend of mine, um, Kyle Athade, who's also another really great, um, composer and arranger uh he and i kind of always used to be a little bit like competitive with each other but like in a (laughs) friendly way we used to so we used to both try to bring in new music like write like new tunes for every rehearsal um with that with that ensemble so that was um tuesdays and thursdays i think the rehearsal was kind of late too was at like like five five to six thirty or something like that every tuesday and thursday and so every tuesday thursday i would so i'd write like at least two two new tunes every every uh every week for and i would try to write it out it wasn't i wouldn't just be bringing in lead sheets we would arrange it for the group yeah oh my god you know and so over the course of like that year i mean i wrote so many compositions some of them were good some of them were kind of like yeah this needs some more work you know because you just kind of just try to finish something but the process of actually forcing yourself to actually just complete something i think you learn a lot and then also to have it played by like really high level musicians um, and, and get just and kind of create that connection between what the notes on the page look like and how that actually translates to how it's performed. I think that that's like, that's a huge thing that if you're a composer, one of the best things you can do 
or if you're trying to write more, is just to write more and have people play your music. And so you can see what it's supposed to sound like. You get more methodical about how to put things on the page yeah. to get the result that you want, you know, without having to explain it as much. Mm-hmm. Not um, wasting that rehearsal time. Exactly. And, and uh, yeah, so, I mean, like, the, the band at that time, this is pretty pretty uh, sick band. I would still hire all of these guys. <laughs> still, you know what I mean? Who was it? Uh, so, yeah, uh, Lucas Pino was playing tenor sax. What? Sorry, I'm gonna um, keep reacting. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eddie Eddie Barbash was on alto. Okay. So he was on the Late Show for a while with yeah. uh, John Batiste. Yep. Um, and then uh, Kyle Athade was playing trumpet. Yeah. Um, Josh Crumbly on bass, who he just like he, he was just touring with. Um, what's that um, pop artist name? The kind of kind of like a black country kind of singer almost. Um. um... Leon Bridges. Dang it! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he was he was just touring with him for a while. Uh, Jimmy McBride was on drums. Jimmy McBride, that guy and, is working. Okay, sorry. Yeah, and uh, Josh Richmond on piano. So Josh is actually coming down to do the gig on um, on the 18th, but he teaches oh. at Temple University now with uh, Terrell. Oh, oh, um, Philly. Yeah. yeah. So like, yeah. I mean, like, if not only is that like this boiler pot of just like pure high level musicianship at a young age, but like. It's, it's kind of like, not the antithesis of a lot of combos, but kind of the opposite of a lot of college combos where people are going in there and they're like learning how to improvise and learning how to be in this combo setting. You guys are going in, not necessarily absolute pros at the age of 18, but you're well off. So like, it's this awesome situation where you and, and, and other people are bringing in these charts and knowing you're going to get that feedback from a young and that man, that's a cool experience that like, when we tell people or tell students, it's like, oh, yeah, like you should start a band. Like if you want to get stuff played, if there's not an opportunity for you to play, you should start something. And then like every week get together and do something. That's that's that. And especially yeah. like two deadlines a week to write stuff. You have something finished for Tuesday, but maybe not for Thursday. And you only have like 48 hours to finish it after that next rehearsal. You get all the feedback. So like no wonder, like you're, especially your September, your first um album no wonder that was just like so put together you had like from your formative years feedback of how that's going yeah i mean and then and then obviously like i mean like i teach a arranging class at peabody now and one of the things i have them do is i feel like from the four four part writing if you can really write good four part voicings and figure out how to do you know because you don't when you're writing for septet it doesn't always have to be four-part rhythmic unison and the horns yeah you can you can do that sometimes but then sometimes maybe you have the the uh the tenor and the trumpet doing a line and then you have the bone and the and the tenor doing something else and they can kind of weave together mm-hmm. or maybe you have one person you know what i mean so you have all these different options and and from that basically writing for big band kind of just is ends up kind of coming naturally yeah you know right um so yeah i mean again it was definitely a good situation to to have that. And, and actually Juilliard didn't actually have a, uh, a dedicated like jazz arranging course for undergraduates. So like the majority of my formative years, like learning how to arrange was just basically through that, like that trial and error method. And I didn't, I never had took like a formal jazz arranging class until I started my master's at the university of Miami with Gary Lindsay. And I feel like those two years were like really great because then I actually kind of had someone, like saying like, here, here's some things that like you can, some little tweaks you can do to make your, your stuff better. And here's some of the things in the notation that you can do to make your charts look cleaner and get a better result faster. And so like that really kind of helped me polish up, uh, my craft, uh, on another level, but like submitting for that degree program, I was like basically like an untrained, like arranger. Yeah. And luckily, you know, I had had enough like feedback from, you know, from, from writing stuff. I did the same thing for the big band. We did a couple of different big band, um, concerts at Juilliard where I wrote stuff for big band, um, as well. And, but obviously like the, the biggest thing too, like, so having people perform your stuff, but you got to listen to music, Yeah. you know, you gotta, you have to, uh, I grew up listening to, um, f- funny enough. Um, I grew up listening to the military band, specifically the airmen of note, and so, like, I've always loved, like, just pristine ensemble playing. And that that group in particular, um, they release albums pretty much every year. And 
the performance aspect of, of how they play, like how clean they play really allows you to hear the orchestrational techniques and like, and hear the voicings really clearly too. So I think just having that in my ears since like high school, I think that's like, you know, made it really easy for me to start writing for big band. I already kind of had all these textures and these ideas that I was hearing with clarity from those performances in my ears. You know, I wasn't trying to just like reinvent the wheel when I started yeah. arranging. You know what I mean? Lots of reference that that goes back years. Um, I, yeah. I had never listened to the Airman and Note until like until I was like 22 or 23. I didn't even know that military big bands or military bands in general were like a, a concept until I was like 21 and they started recruit. You know, like the, yeah. the recruiters that come in and they're like, hey. Um, so like it's 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 always great to hear that people got these experiences like really, really early on, um, especially it's such a clear experience of how to write good big band music. Cause if there's anything that comes out of the military big bands, it's just like always good music. They just, uh, like they put off a call and like, I don't know, I've never been on the, I'm not in the military big band. I've never been on that receiving end of the, the auditions, but it just seems like how is there not an outpouring of people like, Hey, let me get this gig. Like you get the best people. Uh, I mean, they, I've I've hired military musicians, including you. Like you guys are all amazing. So I'm like, even now, it must be really awesome to be in this environment again, where it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're playing. And even if it's not just for the military, if it's for your own stuff, like you have all these colleagues that are around, not just in the Army Blues, but in the several other military bands in the area. Do you like work with your colleagues often, like uh, outside of the? set gigs you have yeah um definitely and and it's actually to the point where like i feel like in in this area obviously there, there are some like civilian musicians that are that are really great in this area too but generally speaking like the military musicians are like the best ones the best musicians in the area so like if if you're on a gig and it's some guy that's like has like long hair and a beard you're like oh man is this guy gonna be is this guy gonna be? Is this guy gonna be able to play? You know what I mean? Like, whereas you go in, you don't go to a gig, and like they look clean, and they're like, you know, uh, and you're like, oh, this guy plays in the Navy band or something. It's like, oh, okay, I know he can play because, like, I mean, the whole audition process is just completely merit based. You know, like we don't even know what the the people look like until like the second round of the live audition. Mm-hmm. So they've sent in a in a uh, they've sent in a pre screening, and then they and then we do the first round behind the curtain. And so all the guy, all the people that are, that are, you know, that are hired are really just great players. Killing, yeah. But like, but I mean the, the, uh, I think there's a couple like great, you know, great filters that like prevent some people from wanting to join these groups. And that's unfortunate because I think a lot of people just have a lot of misconceptions about what it, what it means. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like I'm over, it's not like we're doing pushups between big band rehearsal tunes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Right. Or like, it's like, okay, we finished, you know, mean what you say by Thad Jones. Now let's go run two miles. That's yeah. not like what our gig is like, you know, we're professionals, professional musicians, and we represent, you know, uh, the military, you know, through like public engagement and all that. Um, but we are musicians. So, I mean, and then, you know, some people, like, I've actually had people say, like, you know, I don't want that gig that pays, you know, a good living just because I don't want to have to shave my beard. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know? It's like, I, I I would, yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay. Like, I don't really? Tell you. Yeah, it's like, okay, well, you go ahead and keep doing your $75 gigs, uh, yeah. quartet gig at, at Smalls then. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, but then you get, but at least you can get a couple of Instagram posts from that, though. Yeah, that's true. true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it doesn't necessarily translate all the time. I, um, I uh, with the with the military musician gig, um, the the biggest like draw that I see for people not only is like the the wage and like the just being able to make a living, but also like you get the benefits of the GI bill, you get the benefits of um, being around musicians and just playing. It's kind of like when people say you'll never have another time in your life where you have the amount to practice and, and play music as you did in college. It was like, well, this is one of the jobs where you do like, yeah, that's actually true. And, and, um, and, and obviously certain people use that, that ability to different, um, to different degrees because some people, and, and that was one of my actual uh, inhibitions about joining these military groups is I felt like everyone that I ever knew that joined one, which wasn't really many people, um, 
until like the last few years, which is what actually made me more interested. But it's felt like everyone that joined, it just like you just wouldn't hear about them anymore. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It always just felt like, oh, this thing must have like completely enveloped their whole life. And now they're not like productive anymore. They just only do that gig. And the reality is, is that you could only just do the gig and, and you could live a, like a really great life. And some people decide to do that. They're like, Hey, I want to have a family. I want to go play music still as for a living, but then I want to go home to my family every night and, and, and spend time with my, with my kids and my wife and go on vacation and have like a, like a normal, like life, you know, whereas other musicians like, like myself, it's like, Oh, I'm going to use this as a, you know, as a tool, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, keep my skills up, um, using this band and try to write more music, you know, that I, again, now I'm getting that feedback again from a professional band. Every time I write a new chart, I bring it into the band and we play it. Um, and I'm going to try to keep pushing forward in my, in my career on the outside as well. Um, because I generally have the flexibility to do that. You know, that's so, that's but like when I could, pluses. yeah, I could, <laughs> I could just, just be not, like, right. yeah, I could just be like, I'm just going to do the army gig and it'll make my life a lot easier. And, but like, I need, I need a little bit more, like, I, you know, like just playing in that one group, even though it's a great group, I want, I want to do a little bit more. I like, I like the variety of playing with different people every now and then. And yeah, playing, I mean, you're, um, you're you know, very much so. so you do play as a, as a side man, not only in just your projects, but like, well, not, you're not a side man in your project, but you're, you do your, your leading, but you're also a side man. A lot of people's uh projects uh i see you like up and down there's like what, what eight big big band you play in a lot um oh yeah there's, there's uh remy labeouf's assembly of shadows that i see you play in you just you said you just played with maria schneider out in illinois but you were also playing with her when she was uh in was it in new jersey that she was playing the other month i was like oh, oh yeah we did the uh the nj pack yeah, yeah i went to the a concert there for her not this past year, but like the year before when she had a performance there. And it's just like, you know, these extremely high level ensembles. So it's, it's cool that you're not, not, I don't want to think of it as settling, but you're not uh, just doing the one thing because I mean, it can go with military musicians can go with teachers. It can go with like professors. A lot of them, a lot of people like want to do that job and that's their either their passion some people are really just passionate about that one thing and they get to do what they want to do but your passions lie in a multitude of places it seems so you yeah. get to like pursue those in multiple in multiple ways and not just in the army blues man it's good to be back in cleveland for over three decades the bop stop has served as the home of jazz in cleveland featuring everyone from up-and-coming local talent to the legends of jazz I'm Daniel Peck. Join Gay Pollock and me weekly as we bring you an hour of live jazz directly from our stage on Live at the Bop Stop. But people around the country know how great a club this is. New episodes of Live at the Bop Stop are available every Monday at noon on your preferred podcast provider. So what's with all this stuff that's happening, what is one thing about your artistic life that you like you didn't expect if you're talking to 18 year old Javier, you're like, guess what you get to do in like 15 years? Well, the biggest one is the one we were just talking about. I never in a million years thought I would join the military. Oh, true. So, I mean, that's been like kind of like, you know, a, a blessing in disguise, you know, that I ended up taking this job. I took the job in uh, like basically the height of COVID and the lockdowns and everything. So, uh, my wife and I, we had moved across the river into Jersey City. They had a little bit like more uh, lenient um, uh, regulations. Like the city was kind of locked down. You could only dine outdoors. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of like, you know, um, it was it was tough living like that. And we had like a, a really crappy one bedroom apartment in Washington Heights, as most people that have lived in New York City understand. And we moved across the river. We got this nice COVID deal on this place. And I was just like collecting unemployment. I was like, man, this is like, you know, I don't want to do this right. for, for, for much longer. I think I'd been doing it for about six months. I think that we locked down in like March of, was it March of 2020? Yeah. And then um, we moved over to Jersey City in like September. And actually what happened, the, um, the Army Blues had a lead trombone audition that opened up and I saw it and I was like, ah, I still don't want to join the Army. I don't want to do it, you know? And then a couple months later, there were two openings in the Airmen of Note. 
Um, and I was like, oh man, two openings, like in the course of like, you know, I mean, three jobs open in the, like right yeah. next to each other. Cause a lot of these jobs, they get filled and they don't, they don't open up for like 20 or 30 years. Right. People stay you know? in them. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, the, the army blues audition happened. So I missed that train, but then the, the airman to note one I saw, and then the army blues one came back again. Oh. Lead trombone again because I guess they they had an audition but they didn't hire anybody they didn't like any of the any of the people that, that showed up at that time and I was like man there's three jobs open right now and here I am sitting doing nothing right you know just collecting unemployment and I was lucky to get that too because a lot of musicians had a hard time getting unemployment because you don't have W two income true right so anyway. So I was like, well, I guess this is the universe telling me this is the time to audition for it because I'm not going to miss anything. Everything's shut down. So I ended up taking the audition for all three of those spots, and I, I won a job in the Airman to Note, and, and I won the job with the U.S. Army Blues. And so I had to kind of decide, and I felt like the Army Blues was going to be more, more of the vibe um, uh, and, the, and the, the better fit for me. Um, even though I had spent that whole, my whole childhood listening to the Airman. So it was like, that was like one of the hardest decisions, like, you know, to make, but, um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, that's probably like this gig is probably one of the, the biggest things I never expected to be doing as, as a professional, uh, musician, or, you know, if I had seen myself doing it, I wish I had done it earlier, honestly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. So like, I mean, I mean, you, you put in 20 years and then you're done. Um, and you can be done and you get retirement and pension for the rest of your life. So if I had, if I had like, you know, set my sights on doing this earlier, it would have been, I could have been almost part way through. It's interesting. And like, I don't know, like when you're younger and working, you're kind of like, I don't know if you had these thoughts before, but you're just like, I have, everything has to be in, in line by like 25 or it's done. And it's like to think about uh, working in a job that like a, a high level music job uh, full time and then being like 40 or 50 when you're out 40 something, 50 something when you're out and then still being able to just make music afterwards because like to, to, to make music that whole time and be 50, you still have like 20 years left in your like career career. It's like <clears throat> crazy. So you, I mean this, this gig, even if it, you only stay in it until like the, the earmark of 20, you still have so much music left in you after. Yeah, all. no, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I never would have thought is that I'd be able to actually buy a house as a musician. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, the, the trajectory that I had in New York city, I think that eventually I would have been able to make a decent living, but it's, it's tough. You know what I mean? Like you, you get there and you don't ever know, when, when the phone's going to ring or if it will. Um, it's funny how people always still say that and say, when the phone's ring, no one even calls each other for gigs anymore. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's, everyone's, everyone sends you a text message. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm going way off, off the rails here, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was just planning on, you know, just having fun playing freelancing in New York uh, for X amount of time. And then just hoping that, Eventually, I continued to get better and better opportunities, and while just buying, you know, just paying rent every month, yeah, you know, to like to eternity. But the crazy know? thing is, like, you still get to do the the thing that you like. It's now not even like I only have to take. I have I have to take this gig. I need the money. It's like, well, I'm taking this gig because I want the gig. Like, I don't necessarily need the money. I just like this is like the type of music I like performing. Well, exactly, like, and, and, that's, and that's why I like performing. You know. Music that's the power that you have when you actually have like when you're financially stable. And I find that funny too, because a lot of the guys that I try to, to, to send in auditions, uh, they'll be like, Oh, well, like, I don't, I don't want to have like, you know, like they're going to like, I won't have like freedom to blah, blah, blah. It's like, you don't have freedom. Now you're a slave to, to the, to the, to the money that you need. You know yeah, what I mean? True. Like, it's like someone calls and it's like some like crappy top forties gig that you don't want to do, but it pays 400 bucks. It's like, well, I have to do this. Yeah. I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> I cashed in. All, I cashed in all of like the annoying, like you know, after school, and- after school elementary teaching gigs I don't want to do, and all the top forties gigs I don't want to do. And now I dedicate all that time to playing in a jazz band with amazing musicians. 
Yeah, I mean the military. If I wasn't a large dude and I played way better, I'd I'd be trying. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just like, oh man, I wish I could run faster. You know, like if I could just run faster, maybe they'd excuse the extra couple pounds I got. Yeah, no, it's just it seems it's always seemed like a really really great gig. Uh, my friends who are in military bands in different places have always talked about, um, like a, a, a friend that I visit in Norfolk all the time who's in uh, one of the Navy bands down there. It's just like, yeah, it's crazy. I have a house. <laughs> Same things that you say. So it's yeah. like this unexpected thing that I don't think a lot of people going into music school know is a career path and like a, a, vi- a extremely viable one, which is the makes sense why people stay in those jobs for so long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I can't. How long was Luis Hernandez in his uh, Commodore's position? Like twenty something years. Um, Yeah, and then like it's these amazing musicians, and then they get replaced by amazing musicians. So you're just guaranteed that like the the cycle keeps going. Um, (laughs) If uh, in in all your music studies, what was one of the biggest mentors that you had when you were like going through this you said um uh there was the 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 band leader back in seattle is there anyone else who like played a large role into um your formative years as a musician or even like your your later years as a musician yeah i mean i don't know if i've ever really had like a like a traditional like mentor like relationship with anybody but like, I feel like there are, there are people that I looked up to that I got a lot of like information from, whether that be what to do or what not to do. Yeah. And, um, but like, I, I mean, I'd say like one of, one of the, uh, people I respect, like the most I, that I, I hold in high esteem to this day was my uh, high school band director. His name was, uh, Lewis Norfleet. And, um, he was just a great, great all around musician and the way he conducted the band and the way he got us to play all these people that, you know, ended up not becoming professional musicians and probably didn't really care that much about practicing their, their instrument outside of class, but he was able to, to get us all uh, to come together through like his leadership and get the band to really sound like top notch, even though like no one was probably shedding outside except for like a few people, you know? Um, you know, he was, he was someone that like, that I, I still hold in, in high regard. And I always kind of try to think about some of the things that I saw him doing in the band room and how he conducted himself and how he conducted the band to get that result. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, that's one person, um, Thera memory, uh, over in Portland. I mean, that guy's a pretty controversial character. I don't know how much you, you know about him, but no, he and I didn't really get along at all, you know? Um, and so that's, you know, unfortunately, I hate to, you know, to talk about the deceased, but, you know, I feel like a lot of stuff I learned from him was kind of like, hmm, you know, these are things, you know, like we have a band here that's filled with some of the greatest players in the Portland area, the young, you know, high school players. And yet the result to me was not really as high as it should have been. Uh-huh. And, I, and I used to kind of because at that time I was still playing in my high school band. And I play in the high school band. We're playing ensemble music, big band ensemble music. We're playing really clean and really precise. And then I go play with this band of all these players that are way better. And it sounds sloppy. I'm like, yeah. what's the difference? I'm like, what's the difference here? And I was like, oh, that's the difference. It's like the leadership, you know, like figuring out. So, I mean, so those are still things, you know, then obviously going into the army, like leadership, that's like a big thing. I bet. Um, so like, I mean, these are, you know, concepts I've been kind of like thinking about. Juilliard, I had, you know, some interesting experiences there too. I had some really great teachers and then I had some teachers that, that were like, what's this, what's this guy doing here? Like you can play your instrument really well, but that's not necessarily teaching what it takes, what it takes to be like a pedagogue, you yeah. know, um, university of Miami, I, I felt was, uh, was a really good experience. Uh, Gary Lindsay, uh, Shelley Berg, John Diversa, um, those were like, like really organized and really methodical, like pedagogues that really understood how to take a student from point A to point B. And so you have a lot of students that come into university of Miami and sometimes they're not like the most killing person out of under, out of high school, but like the level of improvement that they make throughout the, the course of their studies there, I think is shows, you know, 
Yeah, the level when, of, of pedagogy that goes on there. Exa- exactly. Yeah. And um, like I said, with, with my degree um, in Gary Lindsay's arranging program, I thought that that was like that was really great. Um, getting the hands-on experience, like in seeing him do classes, you know, showing specifically his approach and how he did things. I think that was that was a really great experience. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know if like, that really answers you, your question, but no, it does. Especially, um, well, I mean, like if it's a, uh, it was just more general. Like here's a couple of people, but like Gary Lindsay specifically, uh, when I read people's texts. And I'm like, oh, if you can make me understand a concept, it's taken me forever to understand in very simple terms. And like, it's it I, it shows that you have said this and taught this over and over and over, so much so that you can simplify it and you understand how to scaffold that information. You're not just like a writer; you're a a, a, a professor. Like, and there are some people who don't understand the difference, who are like, oh yeah, I, I'm really good at the thing, but I can't explain it or I'm really good at the thing, or but I'm really impatient with people learning it, or I like have this expectation but don't understand how to get people to the expectation. And it doesn't yeah. seem like that that is what's going on there. A lot of people that I have met that come out of that program, especially uh, like under Gary's tutelage as a writer, have uh, said the same thing. And I know uh, Diversa and Lindsay are, are – sorry, Diversa and uh, Berg are also writers too. Um, yeah. Yeah, but like that whole program just – I don't know. It, it, it shells out like a lot of great writers and performers, uh, specifically uh, Lindsay's uh, program. But he's retired now for what two years, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I was at the an is Jack where he had just retired or he was just about to retire, and everyone was just like, "Yeah, man." He was like, "Yes." <laughs> 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 <laughs Outside of it, you get to you get to play music all the time. Um, you get to write music all the time. You get to see your friends and play this stuff. But outside of music, what is one of the things that like either brings you inspiration or just like makes you you? So like Javier is a musician, but he also loves. I mean, I'm not really that deep, man. <laughs> 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 I, I actually have I mean, one pre-thought answer that I thought you were going to say. Oh uh, well, 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 the other thing I mean, the other thing that I was that I would say that I'm kind of into, but like I don't spend that much time. Like I'm not like super into it. I really do love like like food culture, yes! and all that stuff too. Ah, I was like, so like yeah. I've been I've been getting into that a little bit more. I love I like cooking um, and like going to different you know restaurants. I've been getting kind of more into uh, wine, red wine mm-hmm. lately. I was real into like uh, scotch. During the pandemic, I kind of like phased out of that lately. I'm like, ah, I don't feel like drinking this anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of enjoy in, enjoy that aspect, you know, and just hanging with friends and yeah. you know, e- eating good food. And I don't know you. So you know? every time, <laughs> it's not, I don't creep on you. I feel like I that's a, an overstatement. <laughs> but, you know, like I cross your story a, a whole bunch, and it's just like. Oh man, whatever he's making looks delicious. <laughs> or like you're like on the road, you're like, this is the food, and I'm like, that is the food. I want that food. So like, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, ah, oh, please let's have a conversation about food because every time I interact with anything you post, I'm so hungry afterwards. Like you'll make a a steak or something, something something red meaty, and you post it, and I'm just like mad. I'm like, I don't. I can't have that right now because it's not in front of me. I want that <laughs> right now. Like I do care less about a lot of the food that people post, but like, and you present it too really, really well. Like when you, you plate well, it's not like you're like, you're not like 
super artsy plating, but you you make it so that it looks real nice when you take uh, it. Yeah. yeah, what's one of your favorite uh, meals to to make recently? I mean, obviously, like my favorite thing to eat is like a ribeye steak. You know, so a lot of times I'll cook that on the cast iron with you know butter basted, you know, medium rare, and then just like whatever whatever type of vegetable that we have. Like recently I've been doing the red onions with asparagus and mushrooms like oh, nice. sauteed together on oh, the side. Delicious. I'm actually on the, I'm on the keto diet right now. I've been trying to lose some weight. Uh-huh. So keto is really nice because you can kind of eat as much red meat as you like. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be bad for you. You actually need to eat more. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, you need to eat more uh, fatty meat. You don't want to eat lean meat because the actual too much protein without the fat actually spikes your insulin. Yeah. And that you prevents you from losing weight. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I've been eating a lot of steak lately and I've been like losing weight, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the ribeye, please. And uh, can I have the sauteed, uh, can I have sauteed vegetables? But uh, can you give me an extra side of butter, please? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know. Yeah, it's delicious. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen like the the memes? Not even it's not even a meme, but like the the way the the people posting like, how do you like your steak well done? And it's like the or how do you like your steak? And it'll have like the the different steak cookings. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. People, it'll be like one that's like way past well done. I also take my steak medium rare. I used to take it medium, and then my wife like got me closer to. I think I take it rare now because like she just cooks hers to the same, or mine the same amount, <laughs> but um, she cooks hers and she likes hers rare. But like I would, I had the first time I had steak, I had no idea what those meant. So they were like, oh, how yeah. do you like your thing? I was like, I guess well done. Like that sounds oh, good. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounds good. Right. Like I want a well done. I was in like seventh grade. Um, and now I've learned, but there are people who still take it like, Burned to a crisp. It's like Kemet the Blackland on that stage. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like a, that's like a that's like a cultural tradition, like in like Latin America and the Caribbean. Oh yeah. I think too. maybe I think maybe it's just like because they were worried about getting foodborne illness. But like pretty much like I used to tour this Haitian band, and all the Haitians always ate their steak like well done. Oh, you no. know, and like a lot of Latin Americans eat their steak. It's like the French are the ones that really eat their stuff like a little bit more on the rare side, you know. Um, that's kind of where that's coming from, but yeah, I mean, well done. It's like, you know, I mean, literally what you're doing is you're cooking out. I mean, you're getting, raising the temperature and you're cooking out all the juice. Yeah. I don't you know what I mean? do that. Like, so if you have like a, yeah, if you have a steak that's like 16 ounces and by the time you cook it, you weigh it, maybe it's like 14 ounces. If it's like, if it's like medium rare, but it's probably like 12 ounces. Like if you cook it well done, like all of the flavor is just like leaving. Then what does it taste like? I don't. Doesn't yeah. taste as good. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know what? I can't hate on people for what they like because they like it. I just wonder if they would like something different they haven't tried better. Which is, if uh, if my friend Ryan listens to this, he'll immediately text me. And he's like, "That's what I say about you." Like, because I'm a quote picky eater, apparently to, to some people. But like, food culture is definitely something that I associate with like your ethos. If I'm thinking about you, I'm like, oh yeah, there's like. <laughs> There's like killer ranging, really great trombone player. He travels a lot to play food culture. If I check his story, it's going to be one of those couple things like, oh, yeah, <laughs> blah, 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 steak. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. If you could go back in time and like talk to 18-year-old you or even just talk to someone who wants to do what you're doing today, if, either if it's one of the hats you wear or a couple of the hats you wear, what's like a piece of advice that you would give to someone who wants to step into your shoes? I mean, I mean, I, I don't really know what, what I exactly would say. I mean, like if, if you want to do what I do, then you, you've got to do what I do. Like you huh? practice, you know, practice your instrument every day, set up like an organized routine for yourself that enables you to touch all of the basic aspects of your technical approach on the instrument and force yourself to play things in all the keys learn tunes. I mean, these are all like the, the normal things that any teacher would tell you. And then as far as like arranging, you just have to do it. You have to, you have to write music and you have to complete things and bring it in and put it in front of like musicians that you trust and respect and listen to what they have to say about it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Um, I mean, at least on the aspect of, of like how it works on their instrument, you know, think like, so you can learn how, how the other instruments work. But if someone's like, Oh, I don't like this tune. It's like, well, not everyone's <laughs> gonna, not everyone's gonna like everything that you write. So, you know, you got to take some, some, some suggestions with the grain of salt, but but especially I mean, if it's instrument to instrument, like an instrument you don't play, and they're like, "Hey, this doesn't really lay well," or "This isn't something I naturally do or see in my repertoire often." So maybe you'd want to reconsider. You can't just have like deaf ears to all that. I I yeah. remember the first time I got feedback like that from like another person in the ensemble who I was not a fan of, and I was just like, "Whatever, man!" Like in my mind, I'm like, "Whatever, man, you're just a jerk." But then, like someone else told me, like I don't know, a week later, I was like. Oh, okay. <laughs> and like, yeah, I mean, great feedback. It's it's interesting too because even on even on something like that, um, you can kind of take that with a grain of salt too. Because sometimes you'll have stuff like I've had like lead trumpet players uh, that I've hired from from my band, and they accept the gig, and then they and then we do a rehearsal, and then they're like, "Yo, man, you should hire someone else." Like, I can't do this, and then they kind of like are like angry with me about like how high the notes are that I've written on the, on the page. Like, well, you should have just written like the second trumpet part could be like the, the lead trumpet part. You know what I mean? So like, what am I going to rearrange all my big band stuff? Because like this one player or, or a couple players don't like are angry about the fact that I wrote stuff that's like too hard for them. True. Yeah. It's like, well, it's like, it's like, no. So like I found people that could do it and they enjoy doing it. And because no one else can do it, they enjoy doing it even more. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, and, and, and there's other technical things like that. Like there's certain things, you know, like maybe like writing on the low register of the sax. You know, if you have some lines that are kind of low that make it hard to, to be to be limber down there. And uh, so, some players will be like, oh, man, I can't do this. And other players will be like, oh, that's no problem. It's easy. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? I do, so I like, do know what you mean, yeah. I, and then, this, and, but there are some things that are just like, you know, it's not going to be able to be played. But, you know. One time I wrote this solely and my teacher at the time was like, this is a hard solely. Like, can you even play this? And I was like, I think if I sat down and like shedded it for 15 minutes, I could play it. Like I can, I can't sight read it and play it like absolutely amazingly, but I think I can play it. So then I sent him a video recording of me playing the top four parts and not the Barry part, but like the Barry part was in the same like lay part. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, I take, I'm going to take it with a grain. He was like, okay, never mind. You, you can do it. And then every time I sit that chart in front of people, I get kind of the same response I'm like oh no we'll take it slow and then we'll take it fast and they're like oh this is doable and like yeah you just have to get used to it like it's not impossible but it's sometimes some things are worth the the rehearsal where but like i'm the the feedback that you immediately get isn't always a hundred percent so taking it with a grain of salt is, a, is definitely a good way of, of thinking about it um is we have um kevin the blackland um which is your new album that we want people to know about. I'm going to be putting links uh, to that in the, uh, in the show notes on the website. Is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about um, on your end? Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you're willing to include the, uh, like the actual performance date, that'd be great too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. So um, if you have that, uh, if you text me that image, I'll put that in the thing as well. So uh, if you forgot from the beginning of that, we talked about it, maybe like five minutes in listeners. Um, we have the, um, the date at Keystone corner on Friday, August 18th. Uh, we'll be playing several sets uh, of his larger ensemble music as an album release concert. And it's going to feature uh, Christy Dashiel on vocals and Sean Jones on uh, trumpet. So I'll include links to that. Keystone Corner is a great venue in Baltimore. It's the second iteration of Keystone Corner, but <laughs> across the country. Uh, and it's run by the great Todd Barkin. Um, how can listeners find you online? Uh, they can check out my website, JavierNero.com. Um, there's also, I have uh, my YouTube page to subscribe, you know, uh, to my YouTube page. I'll be having over the next like few months, I'm going to continue to release uh, full music music videos from all of the tracks from the album. So the the album has nine tracks on the physical CD, but if you're listening to it digitally, you have those two bonus tracks: the uh, "It's All Right with Me" and um, "Contemplation." That those are uh, extra bonus tracks that are only available digitally. Um, but I'm eventually going to release all eleven music videos too. So if you check check me out on YouTube, um, I think that's a, another good place to check out, other than my website. Cool. Um, so uh, yeah. it must be great to have 
like such a unique name, Javier Nero, where it's not like <laughs> there's no other famous Javier Nero. So it's like great dot com. Uh, so I'll link all of that and I'll tag him on all the posts. Um, Javier, it was great to like sit down and talk to you. Uh, I've all, already got to hear you play so many times, uh, but it's nice to like actually have a conversation with you. Yeah, you too. Uh, for cool. everyone else listening at home, thanks for listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe and stay musical. Thank you for listening to this episode of Extra Musical. Extra Musical is a Hidden Cinema Records production. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts and look out for future episodes. Bye for now.